Welcome to Sunday Sermons from Trinity UMC in Lincoln, a podcast to help on the faith journey. Now on to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Slater. Okay, so how many of you have heard of escape rooms? I'm going to guess it's everybody. You know, an escape room, it's a place you can go, uh, you, uh, uh, you, you pay the fee, that sort of thing, and then it's a, it's a puzzle. They lock you in a room and you have to solve puzzles to find the key or, you know, whatever it is to escape from the room. And you have to work together as a team a lot of times through. That's an escape room. But have you heard of the newest thing to come to Lincoln? I saw this in an article in the Daily Nebraskan. It's called a rage room. And as soon as I saw the title, I had to know more of what was going on. The one that's opened here is called Smashing It 402. Do we have, can we get my uh, iPad? I've got some pictures here for you. So uh, a rage room, now in other cities they call them rec rooms, not R-E-C as in recreation, but W-R-E-C-K, rec rooms. They collect stuff like uh, empty glass bottles. Um, um, they even uh, uh, collect some, uh, uh, some electronics. These are donations of things that are headed for the landfill anyway. I do hope they're good about recycling. But you buy a package, uh, and I think, what did it say? You get 15 small glass smashables, five mediums, and one electronic item for the individual package. And then they give you safety gear and a baseball bat. Enough said, right? And the pictures speak for themselves from, uh, from that point on. And so you go into the rage room or the rec room and you have at it. <laughs> they even have group packages if anybody's interested in that. But they have the motto of making anger management fun. Now, I'll let you think about that and do what you will with that. But that attracted my attention because anger and anger management is what we're talking about today and what it means to be angry, at least in a healthy way. You know, the series we're doing now is called You Are the Potter, I Am the Clay. And, well, we're not really talking about potter and clay every single week, but what we are doing is instead of me picking the scriptures subject to all of my blind spots and my leanings and preferences, instead somebody else is picking the scriptures for us. We're using the Revised Common Lectionary as it's called. And for me it's a discipline to preach sermons on scriptures I wouldn't normally pick. And for all of you it means hearing a sermon that you may not want to hear. Maybe you don't want to hear any of them, I don't know. But you get the idea, right? And just like the potter shapes the clay. And by the way, notice we God, we've had beautiful pottery on the, uh, uh, on the altar, and that's for a reason. As the potter shapes the clay, if you've ever tried it or if you've ever known someone that has, it takes a little bit of force, and it takes a little bit of friction, and it chafes as you do it. It is not always an easy process, yet the potter, sh- the, the potter shapes us into something beautiful in the process. Now, I will tell you, we have hit that week that's difficult, at least for me. (laughs) You see, I'm not good at anger. I tend to be kind of even keel. Uh, It doesn't happen very often that I lose my temper. Now, some people need anger management in the other direction. You know, they they get worked up too easily and they need help uh, calming themselves. Not me. I hardly ever get mad. You know, one phrase pastors use sometimes is a non-anxious presence, and that's kind of who I am, is non-anxious. I I have anxiety inside of me, but even that doesn't come out as anger uh, in the world. Now, I will say that parenting teaches one a thing or two about anger sometimes. 
However, that's another topic. My point still stands for today. I like to think of myself as calm and collected, and I hope I am most of the time. And I'm also shaded by the fact that some of you probably grew up in churches that talked more about God's anger than about God's love. And there are a lot of Christians that do talk more about God's anger than about God's love. And, you know, I really don't want to make that worse. So writing this sermon for me was like pulling teeth. It's been a while since I spent so much time staring at a blank screen. (laughs) But Lent calls us to chafe a little bit. Lent calls us to engage in a way we wouldn't choose. Maybe I even need to practice my own anger management, not from the high level down, but from the calm and easygoing level up. So let's do this. Our scripture today is from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. You know, I'm I'm following the scripture, but I don't think I'm going to read it exactly today. Now, the temple was the center of Jewish religion uh, of the day. And, And when I say the center of Jewish religion, I mean much more than a church now. You know, we come to church and it feeds our souls when we come to church, whether it be virtually or 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 in person. Uh, however, To the Jews of those days, going back to ancient times, it was believed that the temple was literally where God dwells. You know, now we we understand that God lives inside of each of us and the Holy Spirit and wherever we go, God is there. Not so in those days. The temple was where God lived. And if you wanted to meet God, you had to go to the temple. You could learn about God elsewhere, but if you wanted to meet God, you had to go to the temple uh, in a more literal way than we understand it now. So people would travel from all over, you know, maybe only once in their life if they were poor and especially far away in rural areas, they might only come once to the big city of Jerusalem to go to the temple and to meet God. And what a big thing it was, what a place of great reverence and a place of great excitement. And it also would have been a place of great trust. Traveling Jews making their pilgrimage would come with the wrong coinage because they lived in a different area and they'd have to exchange it to make their offerings. Sacrificial animals, by the rules uh, set out in the, uh, the Old Testament that they were following, sacrificial animals had to be without blemish and you couldn't make a trip that long and have your animal be without blemish. It just wasn't feasible. And so they had to buy their animals when they got to Jerusalem to sacrifice. Now that's very different than how we worship today, but put yourself in in their shoes for a moment. So on the one hand, the money changers and the animal sellers that were there in the temple were doing a service. They were uh, in service to the people who were there for the temple. But on the other hand, It wasn't appropriate for a for-profit business to be taking place in a house of worship. You kind of see the tension there. You can almost see how the leaders of the temple would have allowed it to begin. You know, it is in service to the temple, and these people coming need that. But, well, as with any business, now the scripture doesn't tell us this. This is reading between the lines a little bit. But as with any business, the business itself is not intrinsically bad. There are many good and ethical business people out there. But we all know that whenever you have, uh, whenever you have a, a large and important business like that, well, you're probably going to have some that are trying to milk it for all it's worth. You're probably going to have some who are in it more for the profit than they are for the service. Now, doing that, uh, and, you know, and, and let me just say that in different words here, people who would be willing to take advantage of the trust and goodwill of the people coming to the temple with, with markups and the like. 
You know, I was trying to think what we might compare it to today. And my first thought is that it would be like opening a Dunkin' Donuts in the gathering area outside of the, the Spirit Hall and charging $10 a donut. <laughs> but then I thought, no, that's not really a good uh, comparison because you don't need a donut to worship. Now, I'll let you all debate that on the way home today. <laughs> However, you get my point, right? You know, maybe it would be like charging rental on the chairs, on the pews. You know, there was a time when that did become a problem in a little different way for the church. But even that doesn't quite work because you could still stand and, and, and worship, right? And, he, and really, there's no comparison because we know that God is in us and everywhere. But can you see the conundrum? for charging access to God, if the temple's the only place you can meet God and you charge access, basically, that's a problem. There's no excuse. And so when Jesus goes in, he takes some rope and he makes a whip. And he uses this whip not to hurt people, but to scatter everything. And it's a noisy place, right? Yelling alone wouldn't do it. And so he uses the whip to start scattering the money that's on the table. He works up the animals into a frenzy. So even the animals that, that, that are there to be sold are worked up and adding to the chaos. He scatters the coins and he overturns the tables. You know, I joked earlier this week, you know, what we were talking about altar decorations. And I said, well, what if, what if we overturned the altar? No, that, that, that might send the wrong message and not quite be accurate. But can you imagine the scene when Jesus was doing this? And it's noisy in a large area. So it, at first people don't even know it's Jesus that's doing it. It's just commotion. Now, our modern eyes miss this a little bit. But this puts Jesus firmly in line with Old Testament prophets. And many were saying that Jesus was a prophet, another prophet that had come. You know, I think uh, first, my mind always goes to Elijah first. I just like Elijah. Uh, and the prophets of Baal and how he called down fire from heaven and then cleaned house in one of the darker parts of the story. The writer John tells us that when this was going on, uh, Jesus' uh, uh, disciples remembered a phrase that started to seem like a prophecy. Passion for your house consumes me. Now, me? I just don't like seeing Jesus angry. <laughs> I mean, who among us likes seeing Jesus angry? It's unnerving, right? Je normally, Jesus is the calm and collected one. He's the one that's about grace and forgiveness and showing a better way. And yet, here we are. Jesus is angry. Though I myself am not prone to anger, I have to admit there are things in this world that are worthy of anger. You know, as I think about the last four years in our country, this, uh, this difficult era that we've been through, my mind is still going back to the family separation of immigrants. I'm still thinking about the empowering of white supremacy that's happened in our country and thinking about the willful deception of politicians to many Americans who put their trust in them and are now deceived. You know, if these things aren't worthy of anger, if these things aren't worthy of getting worked up over, then I don't know what is. So Jesus shifts the conversation a little bit. Now, I like to think of this a little bit humorously, I guess, because the temple leaders hear all this commotion going on in the front area, and they come out and they're like, dude. I mean, that's kind of what happens, right? They come out and they're like, what, what, 
what's going on? <laughs> and they understandably ask Jesus what's going on. <laughs> now, they clearly seem to recognize him as a prophet. They've probably heard of him by this point and knew he was coming, right? And so they recognize that he's acting like a prophet here and overturning these tables. And maybe they even realize that he's right. But they ask him if he can back it up with a miracle or something. You know, when, when Elijah uh, had his moments of anger, uh, he did it along with calling fire down from heaven to prove that he was a prophet, right? So they asked Jesus, you know, how are you going to back this up? What's the miracle to show that you're not just turning over tables? How are you going to back this up? And Jesus replies, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise, raise it up. Now they laugh. They laugh at that. They say, are you kidding me? It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days? But of course, on this side of Easter, we knew that Jesus wasn't talking about this temple, the temple around them. He was talking about himself. There was a shift happening that the center of faith was no longer going to be the physical temple, that from now on, we wouldn't see God as living in a building we would see God as living in the heart of Jesus and then in the heart of us all. That comes a little later in a different story, but that's where it went, right? That's what he meant when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Now, I'm going to get a little theological on you here. But I think this embodies something deep about the fight for justice in this world and about what it means to have healthy anger. You know, the early Christians, they realized pretty quickly after Jesus' death and resurrection that something mystical was going on. That on the one hand, the church is now the body of Christ. Those are Paul's words in the New Testament. That we are God's hands and feet. He doesn't say we are like God's hands and feet. He says we are God's hands and God's feet in the world. And we now carry out the work that God is doing by God's power, by God's grace. So on the one hand, the church is now the body of Christ in the world. But on the other hand... The temple that Jesus referred to, his body that would be destroyed and raised in three days, if we are the body of Christ and Jesus doesn't live in a physical temple anymore, but in us, in his people, in his church, not the building, but the people is where we go to meet God, where we go to find God. But that means that sometimes we are the temple that needs cleansed. So on the first hands, this body of Christ, hands and feet in the world, on the first hand, we are now the ones with the whip. We are now the ones that when something is wrong in the world, it is our job to speak out. It is our job to be angry about the things that are worth our anger. But on the other hand, we are the temple that needs cleansed. If we just go off with our whip all willy-nilly, we might, we will, be blind to the fact that we've let money changers and animal sellers into our own hearts without even realizing it happened. Our anger should start here with our own need for God and with our own need for God's help because only when our anger starts in our own selves will we be healthy enough for our anger to do any good in the world around us. If we go out and get angry at the world before we've let Jesus cleanse this temple, then we've done nothing but smash a few bottles and break some old electronics. 
Not that it doesn't kind of sound like fun. (laughs) I'm slowly learning that anger isn't the end of the world. (laughs) It's true that I don't get angry often, and when I do, I don't know how to handle myself with it. It's an emotion like any other. Maybe it's kind of like a warning light in your car, right? A warning light in your car, a check engine light that alerts you that something needs to be taken care of and ASAP. Maybe it's like physical pain in your body. It's a sign that there's something we need to take care of or it's going to hurt us worse. Healthy anger is a sign that something isn't right in the world and we need to take care of it. We need to do something about it. Healthy anger points outward. But unhealthy, irrational anger always betrays that something is wrong here in us. And it's a warning light that we need to fix it, or better said, allow God to fix it sooner than later. I don't like seeing God, seeing Jesus angry. It really makes me uneasy. But maybe it's supposed to. Jesus' anger, not unlike a check engine light, induces a little bit of healthy panic because it alerts us that something's wrong. Something's wrong in ourselves and in the world. And while we may be Jesus' hands and feet, we can't fix it without him. The good news, though, is that Jesus' anger was accompanied by that promise, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. That's the hope of Easter. When Jesus died on the cross and three days later demonstrated that all things are being made new, if we are Christ's body, if we are a temple in need of cleansing, and if we are Christ's body sometime taking up anger at the injustices of the world, then surely we are also heirs to that promise that God is making all things new, even us, even the world around us. That's the hope of Easter, that we remember even in the midst of Lent, even in the season of the potter. And it's something worth getting worked up about, isn't it? Would you pray with me? Oh God, thank you for anger, at least when it's healthy anger. Thank you. Thank you that you've given us a check engine light to warn us that something is amiss in us or in the world around us. And thank you for the example of Jesus, not only to demonstrate and lead the way, but also to be the one that we may always ask to come and cleanse our heart, our temple. Oh God, this morning we lift up to you all the ways that we've fallen short, for surely we are in need of cleansing. We lift up to you all those things we've done that have not lived up to your example, have not lived up to, what, to, to who you made us to be. And God, we thank you that we may know that Jesus is here to make us whole and to make us new. And as we come to your table today, may we do it with open hearts knowing that you have indeed made us whole and knowing that you will indeed provoke in us the kind of anger that's needed sometimes to change the things that are truly wrong with our world. We pray it in the most holy name of Jesus. 
Amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's Sunday Sermon. For more information on growth groups or how to more fully embrace the life of faith, visit us at www.trinitylincoln.org.